You're listening to the Behind Every Employer Podcast with your hosts, Anson Green and Jeffrey Abramowitz. On the Behind Every Employer Podcast, we sit down with future-focused employers and innovators who are advancing talent development for the frontline workforce that drives business. These leaders are challenging the status quo of education and training and delivering scalable solutions. Discussions cross the intersections of adult education, digital resiliency, training innovations, and other topics important to the new American workforce. This podcast is being brought to you by the Coalition on Adult Basic Education and sponsored by NGEN, a carefree-focused virtual English language platform for organizations and employers working with immigrants and refugees. Listen to the Behind Every Employer podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, YouTube, and you can find us at coag.org. And now, here are your hosts, Anson Green and Jeffrey Abramowitz. Hey, how's it going, Jeff? Good to see you. It is going great. How are you, my friend? Hey, I love the new intro and the new the new uh, splice there. It's great. We're getting we're getting it together. It took us a few weeks, took us a minute, (laughs) but we're getting together. Absolutely. Well, I love uh, this. Is going to be a fun episode because we're mixing it up. Uh, uh, You're going to be in the interview seat here with our uh, wonderful guest today. And uh, I'm going to be the one uh, chiming in on the side. So I really love this and uh, happy to get started here. Um, I was going to ask you, like, uh, just what's on your mind? You know, we've been uh, had a lot going on uh, recently out there and uh, and you're traveling, I think, aren't you? So I'm traveling. I'm in New Mexico right now. I'm Ah. looking over the mountains. You can't see them behind that brick wall right there, but I'm looking at the mountains. And I have to tell you, I've been traveling a lot, but um, you're going to be the first to know is that um, I'm actually leaving my position and I'm going to start building bridges. I'm building bridges. So I've been working on the infrastructure bill and trying to convince people how important it is to get people educated and skilled up so that they can get some of these infrastructure jobs that are hopefully going to be coming down over the next few years. So going across the country, really talking to adult educators and um, here in New Mexico doing the same. But it's uh, it's been remarkable, really well received, but really opening people's eyes up to the future of work. And looking at what jobs are going to be uh, coming down the pike in the near future. So, so tell me what's been on your radar screen. Well, you know, this is uh, when when this airs, it's going to be a few weeks afterwards. But I'm in San Antonio, Texas, and uh, my thoughts are with the uh, individuals out in Uvalde, Texas, about 80 miles away from me. Um, the campus uh, violence and campus security issues, you know, are something that are just an all too common reoccurrence. And uh, this one hits close to home. One of my most uh, favorite bosses of my career was from Uvalde. He worked for Governor Dolph Briscoe, uh, taught me the ropes of Texas politics. And uh, and then, you know, Uvalde is the town. Uh, you know, everybody comes to San Antonio to go big shopping and, and from Uvalde. So it's a very close town to us. And I think it just reminds us from university level all the way down to our elementary schools, unfortunately, that campus security uh, is something uh, so, so critical. I I remember um, when I was managing a campus on the west side of San Antonio, it was a big issue for us. You know, uh, uh, this was a a school building that had multiple entranceways. We had big discussions about which ones would be open, which would be closed. Uh, Fortunately, we had campus security on site, um, but it was always on my mind uh, that when I was steward of a campus, that this was something that could happen. Uh, in our area. And so uh, every time I see it, it just kind of hits home extra close for us. But it's just something else uh, that educators need to be vigilant on um, and, and our business community, of course, uh, in the same way. Yeah, absolutely. Our hearts and prayers goes out 
to all the families and the community uh, that have been touched by all this. Um, Manson, if it's okay with you, I think maybe um, let's just take a break and and just um, everybody just uh, take a few seconds on your own and just um, think about how precious life is. And um, and we'll be right back. We're we're behind every employer. We'll be right back, everybody. You're listening to the Behind Every Employer podcast with your hosts Anson Green and Jeffrey Abramowitz. Wow, we are back, and and we are back with a very good friend and Jeff Korsenik. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Delighted to be with you. So great. Jeff is a chief investment strategist of one of the largest banks in uh, in our country and oversees forty billion dollars in assets. Yeah. He's been doing it for so long, for years. Um, Jeff is a frequent guest on CNBC, on Fox Business, Bloomberg TV. He's all over the place, but I think he's most famous. And the reason he's on this show is um, for putting me uh, graciously in his book, Untapped Talent, which came out in April 2021. Awesome. And Jeff's a graduate of Princeton. Uh, he lives down in Florida. And I, we're so grateful to have you on the show. And thanks for joining us. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. And Jeff, thank you for your help in uh translating your lived experience to something that employers can understand and, and uh, help them understand that people who have exited incarceration are, uh, by the time they are ready to be applying for a job, have stabilized their housing, built up skills to apply, use technology, um, really prove that they are people of determination and character. And when you understand that re-entry journey, it really helps employers. So thank you for share, being so open and sharing your uh, your experience. Yeah, so I, I was glad for that. So we we met several years ago, and just so people know, this this wasn't an overnight project. Um, you had um, you developed a passion. Um, you, you know, you were in the banking industry, and then for some reason, I need to understand this better because I still have never. Some reason, all of a sudden, you you got this. Um, this passion for criminal justice and the justice space. And um, can you tell us a little bit how that all got started? It's, a, you know, in some ways it's, it's broader than the criminal justice space. It's um, my belief that um, everyone in our country should have the opportunity to contribute and live lives of meaning. And uh, it started for me back around 2013 when exploring that part of my responsibilities are to understand <laughs> what's going on in the economy. And we were talking back in 2013 about how many people were missing from the labor force and particularly notably uh, young men, others as well. And I started digging into this and, and talking to people in communities that we bank, I work for a bank and, and, uh, and talking to uh, employers. And I came to understand that we had social ills of such a magnitude that have developed over the last 10 or 20 or 30 years or more that they had become actually economic and workforce issues. And once you start digging in, I started with the opioid epidemic and uh, quickly came to understand that having uh, the impact of the justice system was more than this obscure social ill. It was an actual macroeconomic issue holding back our growth. Uh, so that's kind of the economic side. The other side of it is I'm the son and grandson of immigrants. This country has been the land of second chances for my family. And I think everyone should have the ability to move past mistakes or tragedies in their past and be able to uh, 
build up their lives. Yeah. So, so what's in, what's incredible about all this, Jeff, is that you took a you took a really um, you took a problem which we've kind of pushed under the carpet for a long time, which was really um, you know what happens to men and women when they go through our justice system and then come out. And there's a harsh reality when you look at the numbers. We spend sixty billion dollars on men and women in our justice systems and keeping them incarcerated and all the prisons and jails we keep open. And yet we have a we have about a 60 percent, 66 percent recidivism rate around the country where right. people are finding their way back behind the walls. And um, so we spend 60 billion dollars and we fail two thirds of the time. It just doesn't make economic sense to us, does it? Yeah, no, I always say we have a stupid criminal justice system because it doesn't end up promoting public safety and it doesn't offer pathways to rehabilitation. So it's failing in its most basic missions, uh, you know, not intentionally, just that that's where we've where we've ended up. So it's interesting because so first I have this question. It's kind of a hard one, but I'm going to throw you out, throw it to you is, you know, um, you're in the banking industry. Was there any pushback from the banking industry? You know, like you seriously, you want us to hire you know people that just serve time. And, you know, the, the they describe many people as ex-cons and ex-felons, you know, and they use those harsh words. Um, You know, was there any pushback in the industry for you jumping in this pool? There absolutely um, has been some, but I'm fortunate uh, to work for an institution. And I should say that this work is largely outside of the institution. Sometimes it crosses because it's part of the economic story. But a lot of this work is independent and, and required my employer to provide me with, uh, to agree to allow me to do this under kind of the rules of engagement in the industry. But I will also say that I started approaching this talking about the opioid epidemic and the uh, bank I work for has a very heavy presence in places where the opioid epidemic really blossomed first, you know, that Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky. And uh, so it, it was meaningful to our customers. Sure. And I would start talking about this as an economic issue, and I would have people coming up to me from the audience, uh, you know, speaking in front of hundreds of people at a time, and, you know, tens of thousands of people probably over the course of a year. And people were coming up to me and telling me stories from their lives. And uh, I, I think that helped because it was something our customers were clearly relating to. And uh, then uh, it became evident. I, I was talking about the opioid epidemic as a true economic problem. That was radical at the time. And then it became apparent uh, through the work of uh, people like the late professor Alan Kruger of Princeton and, and others and so places like Bloomberg TV started turning to me a lot to talk about the economics of this. So it became very, very credible. And then moving on to Second Chance and, uh, and the employment of people with criminal records, uh, it, it was a natural transition. I, I built up some credibility. And in fact, I've been very fortunate. The bank has at times embraced this. We've done panels in different cities where I'll feature a second chance employer and maybe a policy person and to get in front of the business audiences that we that we talk to and have a line of commun communication to. So it's worked really well. And then, of course, you know, a competitor bank, um, Jamie Dimon at uh, J.P. Morgan uh, has been very public about this. And that also kind of put people at ease that this was a legitimate issue for bankers to be talking about. Yeah, I actually just met with uh, J.P. Morgan Chase uh, last last week, and and we were talking about um, in their investment in the dollars to try and see how they can help um, get men and women back to work. So you you actually um, like in researching this book, you you did more than just make some phone calls and read some articles. You went on this net this national tour, and uh, it was pretty crazy because you did come to Philadelphia, and I'm going to share a story with you later on in the podcast of, of one of the things that happened. But can you tell us a little about the tour? What you learned? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm um, 
kind of a dog with a bone. I, I once I once I see a problem and I see some potential for a solution, I I, I don't let go of it. And I, I was very fortunate to start coming across some employers early on. First, some nonprofits like the King's Kitchen in Charlotte that help people rehabilitate themselves and, and, and get back into the workforce. And then I was very fortunate to meet with uh, Nehemiah Manufacturing, which is becoming sort of a legendary second chance employer. 150 of their 220 um, uh, uh, team members are, are second chance. And Dan Meyer, the CEO of that, has just been a tremendous advocate for this and is a very thoughtful business leader. And he really articulated the business case. So I started reaching out and finding employers around the country. And uh, being a banker actually helped because very often our regional presidents would know, know, know the CEOs of these companies, so I'd get access. And uh, I started searching them out. And uh, when I'd have business trips, so I was in Philadelphia to speak at uh, um, an event that was being held at the Philadelphia uh, uh, Federal Reserve Bank, um, I would look up people and get to know people around the country. And then uh, later on, if I couldn't tie it into a business trip, I would fly on my own dime, of course. And uh, even in the middle of the pandemic, our early months like June of uh, 20, excuse me, April or May of, of 2020, right, very early in the pandemic, I needed to go visit a company. So I got on a plane, I was, you know, an empty plane and weird trying to find a hotel that was open and all that. Um, but uh, the employer is in manufacturing it, it, because of what they are tied into. They were considered an essential industry. They were working. Uh, bankers are considered essential employees. We were working. And so uh, I, I just toured the country finding these employers. And the real breakthrough started coming early that I realized all these employers, different parts of the country, different industries, the ones who were having success had come up with the same model. And uh, so I started talking about the model and, and formalizing the structure of how you talk about the model and uh, with the intent of making it easier for other employers to do this and have success. Yeah, it's so, it's, yeah. Uh, it's, I was going to say, it's interesting, too, that you've got this, you know, uneven distribution of kind of like know-how uh, on the private sector side. And then you see the same thing, uh, of course, on the public side with schools and colleges. Um, that's where I kind of cut my teeth on this um, when I was uh, managing the campus on the west side of San Antonio. About 60, 58 to 60 percent of our students that were coming in for workforce training um, had some sort of uh, justice involvement in their past. And um, at, at when we initially started program, uh, offerings, we noticed immediately that we were having to exclude so many of these individuals because we had uh, occupational tracks that were tied to, to jobs that required certain levels of, you know, uh, clean record, you know, a lot of it in healthcare and stuff like that. And we, we started doing the soul searching, like, how can we be turning away 60% of our students that are coming in for training? And I mean, I, it just hit us like, you know, a two by four in terms of needing to retool our approach. And we started by going to businesses. And uh, fortunately, I had some really good experts with me that were really good with working, not only with um, uh, talking about, you know, this with our employers, but also working with the judges on uh, expunging records and things like that. But it, it, I just realized like, here I, you know, this is a large part of San Antonio, this community, um, and here we were uh, trying to open a campus in the middle of it and realized that this problem just did not have a, a clear strategy 
on either end, you know, and uh, yet it was representing 60% of students that were wanting to change their lives that were coming into a school building looking for training. So I, I think it, with as long as this topic has been and how much press it gets, you know, when I was in state government, it's always on, you know, elected officials' minds, but we still have so far to go on so many fronts. It's just astounding to me. Yeah, you know who I think has been missing from the conversation is the business community. Yeah. Yes. And because that's where you can work on reducing some of these professional licensing barriers. Yes. Uh, you can get money behind some of the lobbying and advocacy for changing some of our, our, our regulatory restrictions on people who've, who've made a past mistake and paid their dues. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I guess I approached this by working the problem backwards because I didn't know any other way. And I, and I said, you know, if we can get employers to understand that this is a population that shouldn't be overlooked. And in fact, because of our demographically driven work labor shortage has to be considered, yes. Yes. then I think we'll get a lot of the rest right. And this is, and if employers understood, truly understood how badly we treat their future workforce, this, this population, they'd never stand for it. And yeah. I think we're coming around to understand that and that this is a group of individuals that are worthy of investment, not warehousing. Right. Yeah, for sure. I'm curious, Jeff, you talked about the model. So can you share with us, like, what's the secret sauce? Like, yeah, you know, we got employers listening to this. They're going to yeah. want to hear. Go for you it. Know, in a funny way, it's it's nothing new. It's you have to have a process for figuring out who's a good fit and ready to be a good employee for, for your enterprise. And then you have to give them the tools to thrive. The, the challenge is that this is a population that has issues that are different from your traditional hire. Some are related to the criminal justice system. Like you might need flex time to meet a parole officer or you better know the conditions of parole. Um, just as a quick aside, there's a terrible story that was related to me by the CEO of a construction company in Indianapolis where uh, he gave someone a chance, turned into a great employee, so good that he decided he asked him to go on an out-of-state job site that you know really required some some attention and a good employee and the employee was so grateful for the job opportunity and and so committed to his employer he didn't tell him that he was not permitted to leave the state yeah. he ended up being violated and going back to prison and so employers need to know um, how this stuff works and what might impact their workers, because as you know, a lot of the, the population of people who've been justice impacted don't have a lot of mentorship in their lives, may not have had a history, a strong history of employment. So they don't know how to navigate this. So the employers have to meet them. So, so, you, so some of the things you need to do are related to that. Some of it might be more related to deep poverty, lack of, uh, lack of um, experience and coaching. People might need assistance with transportation or housing. The employer doesn't have to provide these. They just have to have a network and people who can help their employees navigate to those resources. And that's the biggest thing in, in the reentry space. It's it's not about finding um, people a job. I think there's a lot of jobs out there. It's helping people really steer towards a career. And oftentimes men and women come home and we say, you know, oh, just get a job, just get a job. We'll take take anything, just take anything. And not recognizing that that's really the problem. Um, it can't be, I'll take anything. It's really got to be, what are you passionate about? What do you want to really do? And that's where the value to the, right? the yeah. that talent pipeline really starts to build. Right. 
That's right. Um, and now, now I'm going to put on my economist hat for a sec <laughs> and say an economic growth is, is founded on two things and two things alone. How fast can you grow your workforce? That means we want to make sure we're not overlooking anyone and getting them in the, in the workforce. But it also means uh, the other factor is productivity. So it's how fast can you grow your workforce and how fast can you grow your workers' productivity? Workforce productivity is directly tied to economic mobility, the ability to move up to other jobs, other roles, other companies that are allowing you to contribute more and more, or a worker to contribute more and more to the economy. That's what you need to help us grow better as an economy, and we'll all benefit from that. Right. So the last two years, we've seen all this. Uh, we've seen, well, right now we're going through it. We're seeing the struggle of finding talent, right? And we're seeing more and more more employers. I'm wondering, what are you seeing in the corporate world? What are you seeing with the employers that you're meeting with? And how are they changing? And what perspective are they now having on those people? Maybe they weren't going to give a chance to a few years ago. Uh, they put them back in the pool. We open in that door. Yeah, we, we are slowly but surely. It, it's funny because I'm a data guy going into this. I had a measure I was going to use to judge whether we have success or don't, aren't having success. And I chose, rightly or wrongly, but I think it's a pretty good uh, proxy for success, is to look at the labor force participation rate of young males, 25 to 34 year old young men. Labor force participation is how many people are in the workforce uh, as a percentage of the population. And uh, I chose the young males because that's where the, the problems were centered. That's where um, opioid and other drug addiction is centered. That's where um, uh, uh, rates of justice involvement tend to be greatest. That's where um, educational attainment tends to be missing the mark. Too many men don't get college degrees, for instance. Not that everyone should go that path, but but it's noticeable that it's it's missing. And that's where we've had the most noticeable sort of missing amount of workers. I'm thrilled to say that as of the last labor report, the young male participation rate is back up to pre-pandemic highs. So it's the wow. big success story out there. We still have a long way to go because it was falling since you know 2000 or before, but we're seeing progress. On the yeah. ground, that looks like is people are interested in my work. So I'm happy about that. Yeah, for sure. They're interested in your work and they're interested in the men and women that I work with. They're actually, they're opening those doors up and there's not a day that goes by that I don't receive at least one or two calls from an employer saying, we need to know a little bit more, like what should we be doing? How should we be thinking about this and, and really understanding? And that means even looking at some of the things that are that are really swinging in with diversity, equity, inclusion of job descriptions. And, you know, maybe you don't need a college degree, you know, to drive that, that truck around and make some deliveries for you. Right. And they're really looking at some of those things. Um, we, we've been our own worst enemies in the business yeah. community. We, we, we've, you know, we, we've had set up this process that is based on excluding people instead of looking to include. And to your point, I, you know, I give as the example, Delta airlines, uh, recently dropped the requirement that their pilots have to have bachelor's degrees. They just want people who can fly a plane as, as a regular Delta flyer. That's all I care about too. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, the, it's so true about these fundamentals, you know, the job description. And I would say too, and, and we see this with other populations, the, 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 the application, you know, uh, you have these binary choices on the application. We see it for high school, no high school, uh, college, no college. And, uh, and of, of course, you see uh, uh, criminal history uh, uh, questions 
and then of course uh, when you have automated screening for resumes and stuff, how you set that screen is including, I mean, there's not even a discussion with the individual. And, and I have just learned that those are things that employers, they're not even thinking about until you tell them, do you realize that you're possibly excluding 50% of your applications based on criteria that really aren't things are that relevant. you think are important? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, and and I, so I'm out there telling that to employers. Yes. And, you know, it, it came about because of the the electronic nature today of applications. Back in, okay, I'm really going to date myself. Back in the day, you'd have a job opening. I'd be a manager looking to fill an opening. I'd get 10 resumes. How do you sort through 10 resumes? Well, five would have cover letters. The five that didn't, you know, you throw them out. One misspelled your name. You throw that one out and you're down to a couple that you can you can manage. I spoke in Dallas recently, an employer said, our typical job opening pre-pandemic, we get 400 applications yeah. because people have it set up. So you, so we got in the habit, very sloppy habit of let's set up criteria, whether they matter or not, to mm -hmm. just winnow that down. Yeah. And you know, the silver lining about the labor shortage is that in the case of this employer, for that one opening, they got three applications now, not 400. So they're going to look at each <laughs> but, but but we can do it better than that. You know, we really yeah. we can improve these processes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So we have, uh, so Jeff's book is Untapped Talent. It's how second chance hiring works for your business and the community. And it's on bookshelves. It's been on bookshelves. I keep, I keep, I keep a dozen copies at home because I give it wherever I go. And nice. I just, I, of course, I, I've, uh, I tag the page that I, the pages that I'm on so they can see it. But um, I wanted to tell you just a quick story before we get into something else. And um, I never told you this. So I, when I became an executive director, I was, um, I was, I obviously have a kernel background. People are very transparent about it. And I had, I'd just gotten hired. It wasn't that long that I was a director and you invited me to um, speak uh, to one of your speaking engagements. And it was at the, um, it was a big banking uh, summit that you spoke at. There were bankers from around the world that were there. And you happened to call me out from the audience for the work that I was doing with reentry and justice. And, um, about a week or two later, I got called from our CEO of a company and he said, you know, you've been with us a little while and um, I think that it's time for you to tell your story to the board of directors. And um, we have a very large board of directors. I went in front of the board of directors and I told my story and I got done telling the story. And um, any, I said, if anyone has any questions, I'm very open. And uh, one gentleman stood up and he said, um, he said, I just want you to know one thing. And I have to tell you the story. And he said, I was um, I was at a huge bankers conference and I heard this gentleman, uh, a re very well-recognized banker up on the stage speaking about second chance employment. And and they mentioned Jeff Abramowitz and the company that I was working for. And and he said, from that minute on, I knew we had gotten the right guy. <laughs> Love that. Love that. Well, I, I, you know, uh, your, your reputation would have been sterling without me, but if I helped, if I helped get it, um, it was uh, up front a little faster than it would normally have. I'm, I'm really happy for that. So. It was one of those moments where those aha moments for me, yeah. I was like, Oh my gosh. Um, so we've seen a lot happening, Jeff, in, in uh, second chances. We're seeing a lot of, uh, there has been a lot of movement, a lot of change. We're talking about a lot of this in the industry and we're seeing companies now open the door up a little bit wider. I'm curious, like what advice do you give employers that are looking to, to dive into the pool? You, you know, the, the most important, um, pieces of advice, uh, for, if they've made the decision that they want to explore this, the most important piece of advice is you have to do it the right way. 
don't view this as and and one thing that that scares me frankly as someone who cares about these issues so i'm afraid that some employers will view this as quote unquote lowering their standards hmm. it's not about that it's finding talent from people who've had different life experiences than your different your traditional talent pool yep. because if you don't go looking for talent you're not going to find it and that kind of if you start out with that kind of defeatist approach um it's ultimately non-sustainable, uh, unsustainable. You, you know, you, if I, I was in Houston a couple months ago, and an employer, it was not the time or place to get into this in a deeper way, but the employer was saying, yeah, we work with the Texas Workforce Board, and we've got like a 95% turnover with this population. There are some diamonds there, but, but for the most part, not. And I'm thinking, you're a businessman and a successful one. You built your life perfecting pro processes. You think you yeah. could do something here and, and um, employers like that, um, employers have to know you have to approach this with intention and you have to invest some time and, and self-education to do this right. But I'll stress, it's an investment, it's not a cost. There's a payoff here of highly engaged, loyal employees. Yes. And, uh, but, but my fear is, so, so, so back to your question, m my message to employers is, I've been saying for a long time you should try this, but try it the right way. Yeah. Well, and I think what's needed too is uh, back to our earlier discussion. Uh, there's there's not there's just a dearth of expertise in terms of helping employers develop a model, the technical assistance to figure that out. You know, we see the same thing with immigrants and refugees. You know, oh, employers yeah. have very uh, diverse views of, and it's mainly based on the fact that they would like to hire them. They just don't know exactly how and what they need to be doing to uh, not have uh, those retention issues and things like that. Yeah, um, because the, the labor market is commanding it right now. There's just uh, a need for uh, any any staff member you can find that you can hire. And when you're turning them away without really sufficient, you know, uh, screening and sufficient like feedback, uh, you're just shooting yourself in the foot in terms of trying to help your retention and your, your uh, sourcing metrics. Yeah. That the, the beauty of embracing second chance hiring and learning to do it right is if you can find a workforce solution for a young man, you know, in, in North Philadelphia who was convicted of a crime of violence, but is not a violent person, that's, there's a difference. Yep. Suddenly, as an employer, you can figure out veterans, returning parents yeah. who've left for 10 years, yep. immigrant populations, you can figure it all out because the structure is, is essentially the same. Right. You meet employees where they are and you figure it out from there. So you did this tour and you wrote the book and in the back of the book, it's remarkable that you have a lot of resources uh, for people, which is really um, which is really awesome because there's a lot of things that you can go to for employers and to really look at um, things that you know could help you in that whole process. But are there is there a story or two that you that sticks out in your mind that everything kind of clicked and I'll tell you one that you actually started. You made this referral to me. And but are there any that stick out in your mind that's that have, that's aha moment? Like we got something here that's really impactful. You know, in terms of employers. Yeah. That, that, yeah. Well, I, I, the minute I walked in the door of uh, Nehemiah Manufacturing, I, I, I knew. Um, and, and in fact, for your listeners who may not be familiar with Nehemiah. Uh, one of the things that all these employers had, had told me along the years is no academic studies had ever been done of their work. 
Nehemiah was a breakthrough because in 2018, uh, Harvard Business School sent a team down and did a business study. They updated it in 2020. It's a case study. It's now required reading for all Harvard MBA candidates. Wow. So it's just um, uh, an awesome breakthrough. And, and I have to credit um, Dan Meyer, the, the, the founder for that, because uh, he's a Wharton grad. You know, Wharton people tend to be numbers people. He expressed it in such a concrete way that I I could grasp that and said, "There's a business case here." Yeah, that that's remarkable. So I'll give you the one you you introduced me to somebody named Brandon Teskowski, oh, and man. Brandon runs a, a five star restaurant in uh, Cleveland called Edwin's, and um, and actually Brandon and I are now very good friends. Uh, and and Brandon um, happened to be out in Cleveland. My partner's daughter lives out there, and we went out for dinner to b- before the COVID. Went out for dinner there, and um, and there was uh, the, so the story is pretty simple. I actually have a slide and the picture that I take everywhere I go. It's one of the standard slides I end with because it's of a gentleman that made us bananas Foster for dessert that night. And I haven't had bananas Foster in a long time, but I have to say it's probably the best bananas Foster I ever ate in my life. <laughs> but that really wasn't why I showed the picture. I show the picture because this gentleman um, had a smile on his face when he got done making this dish in front of us that was as if he had just scored the winning touchdown in the Super Bowl. And it was such accomplishment. And I just I was like, if I could get that smile and that look on his face on every student that I work with, I would man, that would be success to me. That really would be. I love Edwin's because they are daily proof to the public that second chance doesn't mean second rate. And that is a fear. I mean, that's one of the objections you hear. There's this perception that if you're hiring people with records, it means they must be somehow suboptimal employees. And Edwin stands as living proof that you can have uh, excellence from this population. And in fact, I, I think you have disproportionate amounts of excellence because of the commitment you get from from uh, his students at the and and uh, employees. Jeff, I want to, and Anson, I need you to chime in on this. So one of the things sure. Anson and I are really, we join it, we're joined at the hip on this one is um, the importance of digital literacy in our world. And I was wondering if you could talk for a minute, maybe Anson, you could set the table a little bit about um, digital literacy and its importance. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because it seems to come up on every, almost every episode. And um, it is just one of these things where we're at a, such a great confluence of federal funding that's coming out that's tied to the Infrastructure Act, tied to digital equity, and tied to reaching populations um, kind of most in need of digital access, you know, immigrants, second language learners, uh, those justice-involved individuals that uh, sometimes are exiting and have been kind of had the whole digital world blow them by, you know, blow by them. They they uh, uh, did not know what an ATM machine sometimes coming out, and now they're faced with having to apply for jobs and stuff online only. Um, And so it's just become this uh, great situation where um, we bring uh, this this resource of money that's coming out from the federal government, uh, which is, of course, uh, really activating our schools and our adult education programs across the country uh, to really address this need. And I think with the, the second chance population, you know, it's a different approach in some ways. Um, uh, they, they've just com- been sometimes completely removed from the digital world. Uh, and so much has changed even the last five years. We're not talking about, you know, long-term 
uh, issues. These are things that have evolved so, so quickly. Jobs have become so much more automated, uh, fast food. Everywhere you go, uh, there's digital interfaces and digital equipment. So I think it's definitely something that deserves its own approach for the second chance population. And it's it, it becomes like a critical workforce development uh, piece. Oh. Absolutely. And, and, you know, training is now digital, too. Yes. <laughs> I, I just, yeah. well, I was working on one of our training updates and it's digital. So mm -hmm. everything. So it's it becomes this, you know, chicken and the egg. You know, mm -hmm. how can you how can you train someone if your training is digital to start with unless they've gotten a, a leg up? And again, uh, you know, my whole philosophy is if we can get the business community engaged. Um, I know, uh, say, a Checker Foundation uh, out in San Francisco. Uh, my friend Ken Oliver uh, is uh, is the CEO of that. And he's got a push to get tech companies involved in second chance hiring. That will flow down. And of course, you have great nonprofits like The Last Mile. Um, when I was in San Francisco, San Francisco uh, two weeks ago or so, speaking for the at the San Francisco Chamber, it was an economic talk, but I talked a little bit about Second Chance, and I had a uh, leader of a very significant international architecture firm who wants to create pathways for justice-involved individuals, starting with you know training in prisons, and uh, you know I, I, I'm making some connections, and we'll see where it goes. But again. If the business community can grasp this, yeah. and they're they're good at it, getting stuff done. Um, but we we, you know, my my job in this whole thing is, is just to make sure the business community is aware this labor shortage is not going away. So we have to rethink our talent strategies, and you can't overlook anyone. Awesome. Yeah, one thing I would ask probably both of you because you put, you come at it from different directions, but um, I think one of the things that really does help hook the business community are the tax incentives that are available, um, like the work opportunity tax credit and things like that, that are federal programs that um, provide uh, tax relief for uh, companies that hire individuals that are just as involved as well as other populations. Can either of you all speak to that in terms of um, how that could be a, a good lever in terms of getting the employer community excited and, and interested to uh, get on this journey? Can, yeah. can I push back on that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, uh, sorry, sorry, Jeff. I didn't mean to. No, go, go for it. Go for it. Um, those are good things, but the risk is that you get employers who are only interested in yeah. that. Yeah. It's a tool for someone who is already committed to help fund the training right. and development. Right. And uh, I was just on the uh, uh, Zoom call the other day with a, a gentleman formerly incarcerated in Arizona, and he was, uh, he's a professional who's been very successful. He was has been a, had a fortunate path out because he, he retained such a strong social uh, social capital, a social network. Right. But he, he said when he was in uh, uh, whatever correctional facility he was in, they would teach them to emphasize the, the federal bonding program, right, which protects mm -hmm. employers against the first $5,000. I think no one's ever asked the employers what they think of that because when I mentioned that to employers early on, they'd laugh and say, "It's not the first five thousand a loss I'm worried about." It's, yeah, exactly. It's, you know, <laughs> a multi-million-dollar negligent hiring liability. It's someone yes. destroying a million-dollar piece of equipment. So I, I, I think those are beneficial. I don't get me wrong, but I never lead with them. I, I lead yeah. with here's the pathway to highly engaged and loyal employees. 
Yeah, I am the same, although I think it's important to, to call it out. I do think there are also some state benefits and some programs that are really pretty cool where they can get some state benefit. I mean, I've seen a recent program where uh, the employer and the state split the first three months of pay. Um, and it was an incentive to see if it's going to work or not. And it, it reduced their risk. And, and they had a remarkable retention rate in that program That's because right. um, the employer gave them the opportunity and the state gave them um, they were sort of cutting their losses and trying to find that talent pool. And I'm OK with stuff like that where they're incentivizing it. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's I don't think either one of those are really a game changer. And I also don't think like the Second Chance Act nor the Second Chance Pell are going to change much in in, um, in the world. You know, the Second Chance Act really affects a very small two percent of the entire justice population. And um, so I think while I'm going to talk a little bit later about um, some federal stuff, but in my my lightning round. Um so yeah, I think those are all they're important. Those are important things. I, I often um, I think about a lot of things when it comes to employment and retention. And I so appreciate the work you're doing in this space. I think we need more people that are in, in um, banking industries and Absolutely. really looking at the financial benefit. I do, and I'm looking really hard right now. Um, to try and get a, a study funded on the return of investment for hiring someone that's just been justice impacted. And I think, um, you know, money on Capitol Hill and in legislators often talks. And if you can really show a return on investment, not only just keeping them out of prison, but how about all the welfare roles and all those other things that, yes. and how about, Jeez. and then the intangible, the generational stuff in the, their family. Oh, yeah. Uh, wow. You help one person, you're helping four people, right? You're helping yeah. four. And, 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 and that's just the first generation. And uh, it's, I, I don't see how we break these cycles of intergenerational poverty in the United States unless we have pathways for second chance hiring. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I like to, you know, maybe impolitely chide my friends in the DEI community. And I remind them that the, the, the ugly truth of the justice system is that it is not fallen equally on all communities. And one in three black men in America has a felony conviction. Yeah. And so it, it, you don't have a DEI program unless you have a pathway for second chance hiring because mm -hmm. your workforce will never reflect your population. The great Good stuff. Point. Good stuff. That's a great point. So, Jeff, how can we get your book, Untapped Talent? How can we get it? Uh, Amazon.com. You can order it through local booksellers, uh, Barnes and Nobles. It's it's out there. I, I I have to tell you, and 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 forgive me for taking up a moment's time. Sure. When the book came out, you know that's kind of your big push, and then it goes pretty quiet. And I was disappointed, but there was a lot of noise. Something is going on. And I don't know what it is because I've long since, you know, publicists are, you know, those contracts are long over. Um, every day, at least every weekday, business day, the uh, book appears in in its subcategory in Amazon, in at least one of its subcategories, it appears in the top 100 bestsellers. Love so it's it. actually it. gaining momentum even though it's been out for a little bit over a year. And so I'm really excited. It's about just because I'm taking it everywhere, Jeff. <laughs> I'm taking it to every conference I go to, of course. You got to get copies. Book. I got to start getting royalties on this darn thing. <laughs> That's what it is. Um, so we're going to Jeff, Jeff Corsanic, Untapped Talent. Thank you so much for being here and being with us. Um, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back with our infamous lightning round. So um, you're listening to Behind Every Employer, Jeff and Anson. We'll be right back.
this and we're gonna we're gonna have to we'll have to take care of that a little bit one but that was uh we are back it's our lightning round i guess that was lightning striking you know throwing us there back right in there with a bolt of lightning and um again jeff corsonic has been great this is lightning round so Anson, you want to kick it off you want me to which one you got I, I i i will and i'll i'll uh end here with my call to action uh, where i began the show which is um really charging our employer community our schools um to go and look at their security protocols um uh the events in ubaldi remind us of how fragile those can be and um it is something that is at a team level uh, but also you know of course at your executive level in terms of strategy and uh we all have strategies we all have uh, safety plans, uh, our schools definitely do, but it's got to be something with, that we first off remind ourselves about, but then maybe rethink uh, what we've done or uh, look for uh, sloppiness maybe in our procedures that we've kind of let our guard down on because uh, we have got to do our part in uh, securing our customers, our students um, when they're in our facilities and in our workplaces and uh, uh, the events in Uvalde just remind us all of uh, how these things can uh, just completely uh, uh, tear up a community and a nation, honestly. Yeah, that's a bolt. That's a bolt. Thanks, Anson. Uh, Jeff, you want to give us a lightning bolt? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give you my pet peeve that uh, what we're going through in the workforce today has been uh, termed the great resignation. That sounds like it's just revolving, you know, chairs and sooner or later, everyone will come back just at a different company. That's wrong. It was the great retirement. Yeah. The St. Louis Fed estimated last year by October that 2.4 million Americans had retired early and some will come back, but most will not. This workforce shortage is here to stay. We've got 11 million job openings yep. in the U.S., 6 million job seekers. Even if all those seekers found jobs, we're still short 5 million. Employers have to face up to this and change their practices. And those, employ those employers in healthcare, uh, construction, manufacturing, they have been talking about that for 20 years. Uh, about yeah. this upcoming retirement and no yeah, I'm, I'm with you no one said that was it <laughs> yeah. we we saw it happen not like gradually but uh people just said that's it i've done my you know extra year or two that i was going to do and i'm gone um and, and so it true. still seems to be going on i looked at the yeah. last labor, labor report and yeah. everyone is so stressed because you're working overtime and mm -hmm. making working harder because of the labor shortage older workers seem to still be saying i'm done yeah yeah, yeah. so here's my bolt so my lightning bolt, it struck me uh, a few weeks ago. I was in Seattle and I, um, I met with a state legislator in Seattle and they handed me a piece of legislation and it bolted me over. It's a piece of legislation that revises the way we look at criminal background checks in our country. Mm. And instead of, um, instead of uh, something appearing after 30 years when you made that stupid mistake or choice in high school, um, it's actually pushed down way off your record so that um, if an employer needs a second look, that they can go back and look at it. But um, the first check wouldn't pull up anything uh, that was over a certain number of period time mm -hmm. uh, that was so, uh, so old. And also, it also had a relevancy factor to the job that you were going to be doing. 
which I thought was remarkable. Wouldn't that be great if you did something and and it was totally not related at all to um, the industry sector you're trying to get involved in? Um, I just think it makes a lot of sense. And we really need to do something on our criminal background systems that are happening in our country and and what we're doing with them. So um, Jeff Krasenik, thank you so much for being with us. Um, Anson, it's it's been a wonderful uh, episode. I'm really excited about waiting for this to come out. And uh, Untapped Talent, make sure you get your copy. If you need one, just come find me speaking somewhere and i'll have a bunch of them with me or you can get on online and go purchase it you've been listening to behind every employer with anson green and jeff abramowitz and we'll see you in a few weeks take care everybody thank you you've been listening to the behind every employer podcast with your hosts anson green and jeffrey abramowitz this podcast has been brought to you by the coalition on adult basic education and ngen a career-focused virtual English language platform for organizations and employers working with immigrants and refugees. Listen to the Behind Every Employer podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, YouTube, and you can find us at coave.org. If you'd like to reach Behind Every Employer podcast, you can do so at behindeveryemployer at coave.org.